Hear the word of the Lord from the Gospel of Mark. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very, very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they, they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Pray with me. Merciful God in heaven, we give you thanks for your word, for this word before us, proclaiming these profound truths that you are not in the tomb. Help us to hold on to these truths. Help us to apply these truths to our life and may your spirit bring us from death to life. This morning we pray in the name of Jesus, amen. You know, as we gather on another Easter Sunday, this Sunday, we, uh, we come to the end of our study in the Gospel of Mark this morning. And everything in the Gospel of Mark, because we've been studying, studying over the last a couple springs and winters, everything has been leading up to this moment. And to this claim, that Jesus has indeed risen from the grave, that he is no longer in the tomb. And as we think on this audacious claim, it's one of those audacious claims that just becomes so normal to us. We're like, of course he rose from the dead. What else would he be doing? But no, Jesus actually rose from the dead. This doesn't happen every day. And as we, as we dwell and think on this, this claim... Uh, I'm reminded of a conversation that, that the great C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien had once before C.S. Lewis converted to Christianity. They were talking about the resurrection and the, the claims of the resurrection. And Lewis told Tolkien this. He said, you know, the, the resurrection is actually nothing more than wishful thinking. Like every other myth we invent to, to make ourselves feel better about our world, he told Tolkien. Like, like you, you like to write stories like that, J.R., but never does our world tell stories like that? Never are those stories actually real. You know, as one commentator says, speaking about the, the wildness of this claim that Jesus rose, he said this, so, you know, if there's one thing on earth that we all know that seems to hold absolute power, it's actually death, right? Tyrants rise and fall, presidents come and go, governments come and go, celebrities are quickly forgotten, and they all fall before the most resolute and relentless power on earth, the power of death. Nobody escapes it. Rich and poor, proud and humble, all end up in the ground at some point. This is what Lewis is expressing, right? That resurrection isn't real, it can't be. It is not the way our world works. Dead things don't come back to life. Sure, it would be nice. It'd be nice if this story was true, but it actually only exists in our minds, in our imaginations, in our myths, in our stories, but not in real life. Real life isn't the place where, where dead people rise from the dead. 
This is what makes this claim here in the gospel of Mark and in all four gospels and all of scripture really wild that he is risen, right? It's the most important claim for us to grapple with in our life. Did he rise or did he not? What do we believe about this truth? Because when we come to the story of the resurrection, we, we finally come to the heart of the matter with Jesus. Is this story true or is it myth? Did he rise from the dead? Is he the son of God? Is he the Messiah or is, is he not? Because if he did, it actually reorients all of our life around this singular truth. Because even if you're here this morning, you say, yeah, I believe. I believe Jesus rose from the dead. But do you understand what that means for your life? Do you understand the weight of the significance of the resurrection? How it impacts not just your life, but every aspect of this world? Or do you, do you tend to just merely think that this just means that, you know, in the end, one day you're going to be saved. But until then, you just got to grit your teeth and survive. Because with this claim of the resurrection in the gospel mark, what if that he is risen means far more than just gritting your teeth and waiting to the end, but what if it means that he is risen? What if it means if it's a present day reality for you that impacts every part of your life? What if this claim that he is risen is actually the start, the, the birth of a, of a new world that's coming to bear in this world now today? This is what Mark is gonna force us to come face to face with, with the same dilemma Lewis had to confront, right? Is this myth true? And what does this mean for us if it is? So borrowing from many other scholars who have written very well on this topic and other pastors, um, we're gonna dive into this passage, kind of divide it just into two parts, uh, or two worlds that we see at play here. First is the world where myths are myths, and secondly is the world where myths are real. So first, the world where myths are myths. Look with me back here at verse one. It says, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they may go and anoint him. So these women who have been following Jesus, they've been ministering to him while he's on the cross. They've been, remember, you know, in the scene from Good Friday, they, they followed Jesus to see where he was laid in the tomb so they knew exactly where he was. Now they're going back to the tomb after their, their day of rest, their Sabbath rest. It's the first day of a new week. They're, they're going back to the tomb. Um, notice none of the men are with them. I think the men are still afraid, cowering, hiding. And, but these women who have been fearless are staying with them, and they come to anoint him. And so, they, they, so what do they expect to find? They expect to find Jesus dead laying in the tomb. Uh, they expected to find a Jesus beginning to decay in the tomb. They did not expect to find resurrection because that doesn't happen in this world. And you know, one thing you, you got to know about the tombs is that they were not pretty places. You know, I remember as a kid in Sunday school, oftentimes we'd actually build these like pretend tombs and it was always like really green and really pretty and there's flowers everywhere. Uh, you know, almost kind of like our cemeteries are today where many people you find going for walks through cemeteries because they're really pretty and the flowers, you find, you know, women walk around with strollers in them. This is not the picture of a tomb here in this day. The tomb was a place of decay. Um, the spices that they brought were actually to mask the odor of decay. The purpose of the stone covering the entrance was actually to trap the smell uh, of decaying flesh. It's not what you like to think of when you think of Jesus and his paying the penalty of sin. You, you don't think about him decaying. But the, the tomb was there, and so they would take their bodies into the tomb, they would, they would anoint it with oils and spices, they would, they would cover it up, and then they would come back later, once all the flesh had decayed off the bones, and they would take the bones and would go lay those bones in a different place. And so this is what they, what they expected to find. Uh, 
that, you know, because the tomb is a place of, of decay, it's a place of rot, it's a place where dust turns to dust, it's not a place where dust turns to life. In verse five, we find this. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. It's probably understating how you'd feel. Imagine going to a tomb, expecting to find somebody laying there, and you find a, a man, young man sitting there, radiant. They don't find Jesus. They find this young man in a, in a white robe. Don't be alarmed. And then he says, he is risen. He is not here. Right? These women do not have a category for what just happened to them in this moment. Look at verse 8 at the very end. After they have this encounter, it says, And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Right? They, they experienced this miracle. Jesus was gone. They're trying to process this. And it says they fled. They ran. Uh, they, they were trembling. Imagine they were just shaking, gripped with astonishment, grabbed. They, they, were, they were beheld by astonishment. Imagine it's like that, if you've ever had like an adrenaline rush where something happens, you know, usually for me it happens when I'm almost running into someone, you know, driving, they stop in front of me because it's never my fault. And, uh, you know, <laughs> it's probably always my fault. But, but you know, when you, when you almost hit something, you have that near, near accident moment, you kind of have that adrenaline rush. Imagine like it's like that, but like tenfold. They expected to find Jesus, but they find that the tomb empty. They're trembling. They don't have a category for a world where this happens. But you can't deny the claim that Mark makes here. Mark makes the claim very clearly that Jesus has indeed risen from the dead. How is this possible? You know, it's interesting. When you look at um, serious scholarship that, you know, looks at these claims of the Bible and just tries to decide if it's true or not, um, serious scholarship, even those that aren't Christian, actually don't dispute the reality of Jesus, that he was a real person, that, that, that died at the hands of the Romans. They actually don't dispute the, the, the movement that followed based on the claim that Jesus had risen from the dead. No one disputes uh, that groups of people had encounters with Jesus after his death. They would maybe explain it away that it's like a, a dream or something, but no one disputes this. And so you're kind of left with two options with this claim that Jesus has risen from the dead. Either disciples made this up or Jesus really did rise from the dead. And when you look at this story and the evidence before us, and what we see is that this story is too wild. The myth is too wild to make up because they had zero expectations that Jesus would rise from the dead. And although we, we could probably look at a lot of different reasons to back up this claim, I'm gonna make four quick observations that bar, borrowing from others that prove that this is not made up, but, it, but this claim, as wild as it is, is actually true. And the first is this. The first is this, that, that the first witnesses of the resurrection were women. You know, we see this in verse, verse 1, the ladies come. And in verse 7 to 8, we find that, 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 that they were commissioned to share the news. Um, it's easy for us to miss this in our modern world. But in this day, women were wrongfully considered to be second-class citizens. Their testimony was not valid in any court. If you were going to make up a story that was not true... The last thing you would do is pick women to be your first and only witnesses. The only reason you would include this detail, this fact, is if it happened. And as if everyone knew about it. So you can't, couldn't go back and change the details and try to fabricate it. Because everyone knew this truth. That these women experienced and saw this thing. They didn't expect this. They couldn't have made it up this way. So the first thing that we see is that the first witnesses of the resurrection are women. Help prove that this is actually true. The second thing 
I'll point out is that there's differing accounts in each of the gospels of this event. In each of the four gospels, there's a scene similar to this one, but they're not exactly the same. For instance, each gospel shares, you know, different names of the women who were there, who witnessed this. They also differ on the details of, of where the angel was when he told them that Jesus is risen from the dead. And some, some critics will argue that this is actually proof that, that these texts aren't reliable because the facts contradict each other. And while there's lots of actually solid reasons to say that that's not true, um, but in, 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 when people investigate things, if you're an investigator, having difference differences in accounts actually go a long way to prove that something extraordinary took place that nobody was expecting. For instance, if you, if you were investigating something, multiple witnesses gave the exact same account of an event down to the smallest detail, it'd be strong evidence that, that what was spoken of was actually made up, that it was conjured up. What investigators actually expect are surface discrepancies, that the main things are, are true, but they would expect to find certain details maybe different between different accounts. And so the different accounts actually authenticate this witness. Third um, is the reliability of the manuscripts. Um, so you, you may have noticed if you're looking in, a, in your own Bible, but I did not read past verse eight. And this is our last sermon in the book of Mark. Uh, and the, the reason why this is the last book and in, in, uh, last sermon in our study in the book of Mark is because verses nine through 20 are not a part of the original writings. Uh, we definitely know that they aren't original and they're not included in the, in the oldest manuscripts we have. And so they're not actually God's word. And when you start talking about manuscripts and things that are missing in the Bible, and oftentimes when people read these little notes, you might see in your Bible, it says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include this. Sometimes when we read that kind of stuff, we get a little nervous, right? It's like, is this, what is this book that we're looking at? Is it actually true? Can we, can we trust it? People can get worried about the Bible and whether or not it's authentic, uh, and maybe you wonder, is this, is this a reliable truth? But it's actually hard to over, over, um, overstate how significant it is that we can understand a first century text so well that we know what should be there and what shouldn't be there. So how do we know? Well, historians and scholars use two methods uh, to ask two questions to find, find out the truth here. And, and the, the questions are these, how many copies of this document do we have and how much do they agree? Uh, so for any old text, that's what they use to line up. Do we know what this is true or not? So for instance, the Iliad, the second most attested ancient document, has 643 copies that survived. And they agree 95% of the time. Right? So it's a high degree of, of, of agreeing that, that nobody questions that the story we have in the Iliad is an authentic story. And then you have the New Testament. Currently, we have over 5,600 copies of it and counting. Of them, they agree 99.5% of the time. Far and away, the most attested and verifiable document we've ever known. The scholarship is so precise that we can know that these verses at this end do not belong. And what this means is that this testimony isn't just legends being passed down from person to person, but it's actually the most historically accurate document that we have. It's reliable. And it's also the inspired word of God. And if it was describing anything but the resurrection, something that doesn't happen in our world because myths don't happen in our world, if it was describing anything but the resurrection, we wouldn't hesitate to believe it. But resurrections don't happen in our world, and so we question it. So fourth and last reason to say that this is true is this, that the disciples gave their life for this truth. All right, up, up to this point, where are the disciples? 
They're cowering. They're hiding. It's actually kind of a common theme throughout the Gospels, like the, the cowardice of the disciples. Uh, you know, Peter himself, right, the last time we saw him, he denied Jesus to a, a young servant girl. So what would compel him then to courageously preach the gospel, even with threat of imprisonment and death, if not seeing Jesus raised from the dead himself? You know, there's a, there's a video kind of making its rounds uh, this season, kind of mocking the idea that the disciples made up this story. And it has them, they're all gathered around a, a fire pit. And, uh, and Peter stands and says, guys, I got an idea. I'm like, well, what's your idea, Peter? And uh, Peter says, what if we uh, go to the tomb? I'm like, yeah, yeah. And what if we, what if we take Jesus' body out of it? And I'm like, yeah. They're getting excited. You know, they're hyping up Peter. He said, what if we take Jesus' body? And they're like, yeah, let's go do it. And they said, and then we'll tell everybody that he rose from the dead. And they're all getting excited then. And then he, then he says this. He's like, and then we all get brutally murdered. And then they're like, yeah. It's, like, it's just so ridiculous to think that these disciples would make up this, fabricate this story, and then all become brutally murdered. Crucified upside down. Crucified in the shape of an X. This doesn't happen. Cowardly men don't become courageous unless something happened. Unless they encountered the resurrected Jesus. And with this, the point of all this is that the reality of the re resurrection is too wild a story to have been made up. And in a world where myths do not happen, they couldn't have even imagined it to make it up. They certainly wouldn't have given their lives for it. And yet it is this unexpected reality of the resurrection that transformed this group of cowardly disciples into courageous men who died for the sake of the gospel, who died for the sake of this profound claim that Jesus has indeed risen from the dead. So you might say, okay, I'll give you that. Sounds like good evidence. Jesus rose from the dead. I believe it. But what difference does it make that Jesus rose from the dead? I mean, really? Is your life still hard? Probably. Uh, do people still die? Yes. Maybe Jesus didn't die anymore, but we still will. So what difference does it make that this one myth is true? How, what does it change about our world? Well, it changes everything about our world. Because the resurrection is actually what gives birth to a new world. A world where myths are real. As John Stott once said, truly when Christ died and was raised from the death... A new day dawned, a new age began. And this is what we find here in the end is the world where myths are real. The world where myths are real. We see this again in verse six when the angel says, and he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. This is the one myth that is real. That Jesus has indeed risen from the dead. The tomb is empty. You know, in the conversation that Lewis and Tolkien had when, he was, when, when they were talking about the resurrection, Tolkien responded to Lewis, challenging him to think differently about myths and stories by saying this. He says, uh, why do we tell stories and myths? Is it merely wishful thinking? Or, or could it be that more is going on in our souls? He says, what if... Of those stories and longings we have where good triumphs over evil, where dragons are slain, what if those instincts were not just Darwinian coping mechanisms, but actually things that pointed to a world that once was true but was lost, but still finds its memory in our longings and stories? Right? What if these stories and myths are echoes of Eden? 
It's a profound question to ask. And Lewis, as you probably know, eventually would come to believe in the resurrection. And he would say that Jesus Christ is not just one of many myths, but that, his, that the gospel of Jesus is the one true myth. And all myths are actually pointing to this deep truth that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And as he rose from the dead, he is giving birth to a new world. That it's not just him that was, that was risen on that day, but all creation is going to be made new. It began to rise from its slumber and it ushers in a new world, a new kingdom. It's the world that we all long for, where there's no more death and dying, no more tears and sadness. This is the world that is being birthed through the resurrection of Jesus. The dawn of a new world is here. The new creation, a recreation is happening. And that's actually what we see in our text this morning. Looking at back at the beginning at verse 1, there's a, there's a small detail that was actually in the chapter before us as well, speaking of the timing of this event and when this happens. It's very specific and when this is happening. It says in verse 1, when Sabbath was passed. When Sabbath was passed, this kind of brings us back to, to the garden. right? Jesus was in the tomb when? On Sabbath, on Saturday. In the creation account, this is the day that God himself rested, right? Days one through six, he worked. In day seven, he rested. But humanity messes that up. We, humanity interrupted the rest, so to speak. But God didn't give up humanity, even in the fall of man in the garden. And when God was kind of reconstructing his people in the, the people of Israel, he did something interesting. He formed them, too, around a seven-day week where they had a rhythm of work and rest, a reminder that, that God has not abandoned his creation. He invites us into his work. Six days we labor to make the world better, to expand his kingdom and rule on this earth. And on the seventh, we rest, trusting God, following Yahweh's pattern. And through his people, Israel, God has promised that a Messiah will come one day and fix the world that will make their work effective. And Mark is the earliest gospel of the account that the Messiah is coming to do just that, right? And what are Jesus's first words in the gospel of Mark? First things he says are this, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is preaching the invasion of a new world. God's kingdom, which we pray every week will come on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus, as he walks the earth, is an outpost of this new kingdom, isn't he? What happens wherever Jesus goes somewhere, sins are forgiven, Diseases are healed, right? He is the embodiment of the world that we long for. The world revelation promises us at the end. He's the world where myths are real. And then there's an abrupt ending to the story. It seems like when, when Jesus is, is killed and just like the first creation account, Jesus rests. He spends Sabbath in a tomb. And for a moment, it could seem like the dream of Eden is lost, like the mission has failed. But then at the dawn of a new day, the dawn of the, the first day of a, of a new week, the first day of a new world, his light dawns. He is risen. The firstborn of the new world, the significance of Jesus rising on the first day is he is rising to create a new world. He's the second Adam coming to expand his garden to the ends of the earth. He's coming on a day of work. This is the start of the new creation. A new work week. Our second Adam, our Messiah, coming to make all things new. And in Christ, what are, what are the people who follow Christ called? We're called new creations. This is your new identity. We are his new people. We are the church. We are called into this work. We are new creation people, born of the firstborn of the new world. This is what Paul calls Jesus, right? The firstborn of the dead. The first fruit of the new world. 
the fruit that we eat of each Sunday as we come to the, the table, the fruit that creates fruitfulness in us by the Spirit. You and I are not old creation people anymore. His resurrection means everything to us. As Christ is risen, so his people have been raised with him. This is not just a future tense identity for you, but it is past. It has happened to you. This is true of you. You are made new now. You are part of that new kingdom that Jesus is bringing to bear on the entire earth. The question for us is, do we trust him? Do we trust the story of the resurrection, both in the world out there, no matter how dark and bleak things seem, just like Good Friday to resurrection, do we, do we trust the, the story out in our own lives, the, the despair that we feel, the anxieties, the depressions, or do we trust the circumstances of Easter morning stronger? That, that although we still wrestle with the old man, that the old man is the one fading away, that, that although we, we struggle in a world of darkness, the light of Christ is dawning, that we live in a world where myth is real, where resurrection is stronger than death. Because the wild implication here about Jesus birthing a new world and making us a, a, a new people born again by the Spirit is that as, as you are new people, you are charged with the same task as being outposts of this new kingdom. Bringing his new creation to bear in this world wherever you go, just as Jesus was an embodiment of that new world, so we are. And as these, just as these women were sent to tell the disciples that he is risen, so we're sent into the world with the same message. You know, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes this brilliant chapter on the resurrection. It's a worthwhile reflection for you even this afternoon. But he actually ends it in kind of a strange way. Uh, he says, Jesus is risen, therefore abound in the work of the Lord. In the Lord your labor is not in vain. He's talking about the resurrection. He says, now go get to work. And in, in this, he's doing this interesting thing where he's connecting our work to the resurrection which I think is important for us. I think often we think our work in this world can be futile at times. Like, sure, I'm doing some good things. Sure, maybe I'm loving my neighbor. Maybe I'm loving my wife. Maybe I'm loving my kids. I'm trying to do these right things, but, but really in a broken world, what difference does it make? It's like trying to fill the ocean with, with stones one at a time. It doesn't seem like it, it works. But because we know that a new world is coming, because of the resurrection of Christ and the world that he's bringing to bear, Every effort to bring that world to bear is not in vain because Jesus is risen from the dead. This is true in every part of our life, right? The places where you battle sin, your labor to battle sin is not in vain, even if you struggle over and over again because Jesus Christ has conquered the reign and the terror of sin. Even your, your labor is not in vain in your, in your daily jobs, whether you love them or hate them, because as you labor, as you labor well at your work, you labor unto the Lord. And you make the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Or your, your labor is not in vain as you care for your house and its daily chores, or as you spend your days changing diapers and disciplining kids. Because as you care for your home, you make it an outpost of the kingdom. As you raise your children in the Lord, you raise them to be heralds of this great gospel. The resurrection changes everything. It gives weight to every moment of our life because Christ has risen and has raised his people with him as well. Everything from our moments of rest to work is made holy. Every good work is made holy in Christ because he rose from the dead and sends you into the world as new creation beings. We're all working out of the promise of the resurrection that Jesus is making all things new. Not that you and I are making all things new, but some mysterious way he uses us as broken vessels as we are to bring his kingdom to bear in this world. Right? We are the new citizens of his kingdom. 
Jesus says, Jesus walked bringing his kingdom to bear, so we are too. So in this, we're not called to sit back, to hide out in bunkers, to cower, to wait for the world we know is coming to come, but we're called in scripture to join Jesus to bring it to bear. Even if that means our lives end like the disciples in death and destruction, we can, we can work boldly knowing that in Christ our labor is not in vain, that he is risen, that the new world has dawned and he's invited us into it. May we be a people who, who believe the great myth and labor for that future day when all things will be made new, knowing that in Christ our labors are not in vain. May the Lord haste the day when our eyes see what our faith preaches. Amen. Pray with me. Merciful, gracious Father in heaven, we ask that you would give us eyes to see, hearts to believe and chase after these profound truths that you, you are alive. And as you are alive, as you have conquered sin and death, so have you made us alive. The once we were dead, now we are alive in you. Bind us together in your spirit. Help us to walk in the newness of life, dying to our sin, living to righteousness. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray, amen. Friends, I invite you to stand, to join your voices with the church of old, declaring our belief. Church, and what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pilate, was crucified into the grave. The third day he rose again from the dead into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Believe in the Holy Spirit, the communion of saints, forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Many may be seated. Another way we respond to God is the giving of our tithes and offerings. And we know everything that we have comes from our Father above, knowing that. Nothing we have is, is of our own doing, of our own work, but it's of him. And so we give back, trusting that he who provided will continue to provide for, for our needs. To give to St. Andrews, you can give online here. You can give in the tithe box that's in the back of the room to your right. Uh, may we give with cheerful and joyful hearts. Join me now for a time of prayer. Blessed are you, most gracious Father. For having prepared for us an eternal kingdom, a heavenly city, a new Jerusalem that is invading our earth today. As our Lord Jesus Christ has taught us, we pray for that coming of that kingdom. Father, we pray for the church that she might in truth be the new Jerusalem, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Give to her true purity that she might be without spot or wrinkle. Give her the grace of hope and the confidence of joy as she awaits the coming of the bridegroom. We pray for our own church here. Grant that we might be a sign here on earth, the church that is above. 
Blessed are you, O Father, for your faithfulness to your people. Father, we pray for the church around the world this morning, wherever she is gathered. For those rejoicing in your resurrection, give them joy and feasting in this great truth of the resurrection this morning. We pray for those who lead your people. Grant them wisdom and understanding. Fill them with your spirit. Father, whose love and concern is for a world filled with a great variety of people, we pray for people in different lands. Grant that the gospel might be heard in all languages and all corners of the earth. Father, we pray for those who lead our nation. Anoint them with the gifts of your spirit, honest, fairness, and intelligence, love of peace and humility. Father and shepherd of the flock of your people, we pray for the members of our congregation that they might walk faithful lives, that wherever they find themselves in their daily labors, that they would be outposts of your kingdom, abounding in the fruits of the spirit. We pray for all those gathered, for husbands and wives, that their love might grow richer and kinder, for children and and young people, that they might grow in every good endeavor, for people who live alone, that they might find friendship and community, for grandparents and elderly friends, that they might have the radiance which belongs to older years. Blessed are you, O faithful shepherd. All these mercies we ask in the name of Jesus who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Amen.